Well, it's very nice to be with you this morning. We are going to talk about friendship at the margins. Man, those colors are washed out. Um, we'll be in Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 35, primarily. Just as a reminder, what we've been talking about last couple of weeks and we'll continue to discuss is what you might call, here's how I think of it, I don't know, uh, but I think of this as how to live into the kingdom of God. How to live into the kingdom of God. Or as we have uh, commonly referred to it, I certainly have, uh, how to live as a missional community. How to live as a community of disciples on mission. But I want to highlight this kingdom idea, the vision of the kingdom of God that Scripture presents to us, that if we let it, if we take a moment and let our imaginations run wild, run away from our experience, the reality that we know day in and day out, and, and carry us toward what Jesus is offering to us. The question becomes, how, how do we live into that? How do we, from, from our reality, from our present, what can we do to truly embrace the coming of the kingdom? It's challenging. It's challenging to be practical pretty much all the time um, because very little about following Jesus is a set of steps that you can do. And so we're always faced with the question, what do I do now, here, in this moment? But we're hopeful that uh, talking about some practices or disciplines uh, will, will give us some guidance in this way. So in, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus has just healed a centurion's servant, a centurion, a Roman military person. Just healed his servant and then has just raised a widow's son from the dead. Two powerful manifestations of the kingdom of God. What it looks like when the king reigns in a place healing, life, comfort for those who mourn. And then the disciples of John reported all, thing, all these things to him. So remember, John is in prison at this point. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? It's a revealing question because the story begins with John declaring that the one who is greater than him is coming and he's not fit to tie his sandals. And the Gospel of John, anyway, has John the Baptist clearly saying, Behold the Lamb of God. He is the one. 
And at the very least, John baptizes Jesus, who is his cousin, whom he knows, whom he knows at least in the family, uh, that there are some extraordinary circumstances and even divine promises attached to him. There's every reason to think that John, at least earlier in the story, is working on the assumption that this is the one. But then, uh, spending some time in prison might cause one to reevaluate the decisions that you've made, right? A little time in prison seems to have raised the question again for John. Are you the one? Is this right? Is this how things are supposed to go? I'm supposed to faithfully prophesy the word. I'm supposed to live like a crazy person. I'm supposed to segregate myself from society. I'm supposed to make a bunch of enemies by telling the truth to people who don't want to hear it. I'm supposed to spend my time ministering to the lost sheep of Israel, and then I get arrested for it. Yay, the kingdom has come, right? Are you the one? When the men had come to him, to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus had just then cured many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and had given sight to many who were blind. He answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news brought to them. Go tell him what you see. Go tell him about the reality of the kingdom of God breaking in. Go tell him it's happening. That there's healing, that there's liberation, that there's peace, that there's comfort, there's hope. Tell him it's happening. That's the kingdom of God. That's how you know the king has come. And there's no other way to know that the king has come. Tell him it's happening. It's not happening for him. He's sitting in prison. But all he needs to know is that it is happening. The kingdom of God is breaking in. Jesus is the one. We've all got to struggle with the way that that happens partially and fits and starts sometimes not at all in important parts of our lives and we wonder we sit in our own little prisons and we wonder are you the one but we look to the kingdom of god erupting into the lives of the people who are most on the margins and we learn something about the truth of King Jesus. He says, Blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Do you wonder what, it, what he's saying? I mean, the blind see, the sick are healed. The dead are raised. Good things happening. Who would be offended by that? I suspect many of us this morning are thinking, well, I'm certainly not offended by it. I think that's wonderful. That's the kingdom we're all waiting for. That's the kingdom we're all waiting for. That's 
That's God at work. Amen. Hallelujah. And I want to say, are you not offended? The picture of a gladiator, are you not entertained, came to mind. Are you not offended? Are you not offended on John's behalf? (laughs) Are you not offended that they get the benefits? Are you not offended that it comes in this way and not some simpler, cleaner, more complete, more compelling, more powerful way? Are you not offended that this is how God does things? It's at least a little offensive. It's at least a little hard to understand. Let's be honest with ourselves. Let's not just put ourselves on the side of the angels here. I'm with Jesus. I'm not offended. Is that really honest? Is that truly the case? If it is, there's blessing in it. There's blessing in it. But I think a lot of us struggle to get there. And I don't think all of us are there all the time. I think there's some offense in this. And I want to focus this morning on one of the ways that that offense really manifests as we struggle to lean into the kingdom of God. So the story goes on. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? What was the point of that? Did you go to watch a reed shaken by the wind? Uh, that may sound mysterious to you. I, I think I agree with, I agree with uh, those who believe that Jesus is actually just referring to something pointless and trivial here. Did you go out into the wilderness to watch the wind blow through the reeds? Just for nothing at all? What then did you go out to see? Because the answer to that one's no. No, we didn't go out to watch a, a, a reed. What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who put on fine clothing and live in luxury are in royal palaces. Go, go, go watch the status quo if that's what you're interested in. If, you're, if, if that's what you're into, if that, if that life is what you're pursuing, that's not the kingdom. Go, go, look for it. go look for it there. No, you came for something else. Would you go out to see a prophet? Yeah. And more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. You will prepare your way before he will prepare your way before you. More than a prophet in what sense? More than a prophet in the sense that he's the last prophet before the Messiah. He's the one who tells you, Now is the time. He's the one who says, Behold the Lamb of God. He's the one who sits in prison on behalf of the Messiah. Lots of prophets suffered in lots of ways and came to terrible ends, but he's the one, he's the one who has to sit in that prison and wonder if this is the right Messiah because of the way the Messiah does business. 
I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John, yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now get a hold of that. A prophet and more than a prophet. More than a prophet. And yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So you have to ask, well, who are the least in the kingdom of God? What does that mean? And why are they greater than John? Tough question. Tough question. I'm fairly confident that the least in the kingdom are the people that Jesus just referred to who've been healed and liberated, who've been raised, who've been comforted. The least in the kingdom, those who are the least in society, but enter the kingdom of heaven. People who come into God's kingdom from the very margins, not from palaces, not from luxury and fine clothing, not from comfort, but who come in from places of suffering and desperation and need. And even those people of the lowest status, of the least power, those people who come into God's kingdom are greater even than John the Baptist who faithfully faithfully proclaims the coming of the Messiah. And the reason is very simple. Because the reality of the kingdom, the truth of the kingdom, is greater than anything before it. What's happening, the transformation of the world, of our lives, the realization of God's purposes and will, of goodness and healing, of well-being in a complete sense, of knowledge of God, of intimacy in community with one another. Where that happens, that is, that is so much more than the greatest preacher you could possibly imagine living in a different age. Listen to this now. There's nothing, there's nothing about the best of our reality that compares with the world getting set right in the lives of the people at the margins. There's nothing that compares to that. Not even in our religious lives. Not even John the Baptist. And all the people who heard this and here's how, you, here's how you know who the least are. Even the tax collectors acknowledged the justice of God because they had been baptized with John's baptism. Now, we've got a translation problem here, if you'll forgive me for clarifying something. But you can't, well, if you go to the next slide, you can't, you can't actually see this structure if you if you get fooled by the translation. See, where my translation just said, acknowledged the justice of God, that's a gloss. 
because what it literally says is they justified God. And many translators are scandalized by the thought that God could be justified by humans, would need to be justified by humans, and so they use an idiomatic expression in translation instead. But it says all the people, including the tax collectors, those who are least, justified God, which means that they vindicated God. That by being the least in the kingdom, they showed that God is in the right to do business the way he does. By showing that they too can be made right, can be healed, can be liberated, can be transformed. That they too can be brought to repentance and to life. And that justifies God. The God proclaimed by John the Baptist, the God proclaimed by Jesus. That justifies God. That shows that he is just and right in doing it the way he does it. The kingdom, it comes and fits and starts. It comes in a way that's hard for us to understand. If we're the ones sitting in prison, if we're the ones suffering from disease, if we're the ones who don't have financial resources, it's hard to look at Jesus and know you're the one. But God is right is justified in bringing the kingdom in the way that he does. And these tax collectors, they justified God. They said, yes, yes, we are the least. We are the least, and even us. We're in the kingdom. The kingdom's coming. So it's important to get that, justified by God, because the way that the passage ends, there's symmetry to this structure. Wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom here, because of this structure, it's fairly easy to conclude, wisdom is a gloss for God. It's a, a, a not a pseudonym, but an, an epithet to refer to God. And in the same way, what, sorry, am I using words I'm not supposed to, my wife's laughing at me. Sorry, sorry. It's a pen name, something like that. Um, um, she helps me know when I'm saying I'm badly communicating. Yeah. Um, so, so the idea of this passage overall is that God is justified. That the that that God's children, being God's children, that these people are God's children. That that this transformation happens to them, not the powerful. Not the advantage, not the wealthy, not the wise, not the strong, but that their lives get, that they become the children of wisdom. That the foolish are made to, to be wise. They justify God. This is the justification of the way that the kingdom comes. The declaration that it's right. And in the middle of this thing, this claim, is a double rejection. A double rejection. First of all, but by refusing to be baptized by him, by John, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected, listen to this now, God's purpose for themselves. God has a purpose for them called the kingdom of God. And they rejected it. 
They wouldn't accept that the king was coming. Because of the way that God made known that coming through John the Baptist, they rejected it. And then to what will I compare this people, the people of this generation, says Jesus, what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not weep. Yeah, whiny children. We said play like this, but you wouldn't play along. We want it our way, but you won't do what we want. The people of this generation are like disappointed children. You can go to the next one. John the Baptist doesn't validate their self-serving. They're out there for their own reasons. They're far more interested in the people and the fine clothings and the palaces. And John has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. Well, they don't like that. It's a little too extreme, John. It's a little too much. Can we be moderate here? All things in moderation, John. So they say he's got a demon. He's out of his mind. He's a crazy person. He's lost it. This is not what God wants. This is not what God looks like or sounds like. This is not acceptable. It's not what we want. So then Jesus comes, the Son of Man, eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus doesn't validate their sense of propriety. We can't hang around with those kinds of people. You can't just go, just go be a part of all of that. That's not the scene you're supposed to be in. It's not the kind of people. You know, didn't your mother ever tell you you're known by the... Right? Bad company corrupts. You're supposed, to be a, you're supposed to be a teacher, a religious example. You're supposed to be more holy at least than them. There you are drinking with them, eating with them, being with them. Okay, so we can beat up on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law pretty easily. I'm telling you right now, you have a sense of propriety that Jesus is willing to step all over. What would Jesus do here in Murfreesboro? Where would he spend his time? I think he'd hang out with hookers and crooks. And that's hard. That's not easy because because we're not talking about people who've made bad decisions and and really want to change. We're talking about people stuck in cycles, in systems, in habits, in lifestyles. It doesn't change easy. You don't go into this situation, have one conversation, and now people are all excited about a new way of life. 
and capable of living in that way and capable of escaping the life they've been in. It doesn't happen that way, folks. So hanging out with, let me get to the meat of the sermon here, being friends with the people at the margins is really tough. It's very challenging. This is the how-to. How do you live into the kingdom of God? How do you justify the way that God does kingdom the way that God reigns you do it like Jesus you do it so that people look at you and say that's a glutton and a drunkard and he hangs out she hangs out she spends her time with the wrong kind of people that's what you want people to say about you if you want to be like Jesus you've all got a sense of propriety Jesus is willing to trample it. How? How do you live in it? You, you become friends with. And that's the word in this passage that I want to key in on for the rest of this sermon. You become friends with. See, they were right about something. They weren't right by trying to smear his reputation. Drunkard, glutton, right? Trying to say, oh, well, he's sinful because he's hanging out with people that are known to be sinful. That's a smear campaign, but they were, they were right. He is, in fact, friends with tax collectors and notorious sinners, unrepentant sinners, people who you can call them a sinner and everybody knows what you mean because everybody knows what they do, how they live, the mistakes they've made, the prices they've paid. Their consequences are public. Their lifestyle is known. That's who he's friends with. And we've got to talk this morning about what it means to be a friend. Um, is it over there? I just want to make, I want to, yeah, I've got to watch the time. Thanks. I've got two minutes. Oh, no. So, so, so the next question is then, the next question is, who's at the margins? Who's at the margins? What do I mean by hookers and crooks? That's shorthand, right? Go to the next one. Yeah. Who's at the margins? Friendship at the margins is friendship, first of all, with all those people that are already implicitly mentioned, those least in the kingdom, People who are sick and disabled. People who are outcast, like tax collectors. Right? They're traitors. They're the wrong kind of people. They're people who don't have our interests at heart. If we were to frame the tax collector's role in modern politics... would say something like, this is a person who doesn't love America. He's not looking out for our good. Looking out for the good of the people who want to take our money, take our freedom, take our way of life. Am I finding your sense of propriety yet? The outcast, the grieving... 
right? That's who's hidden behind the dead being raised. That's not just about dead people being alive again, which is cool. It's about all the people that they left behind. Everybody who's mourning that death, that loss. The poor. So who's an outcast today? For us. We know who the sick are. We know who the disabled are. We know who the grieving are. But who's outcast today? I'd love to hear some. Okay, let me, let me say those two and then we can keep going if y'all have got some others. The LGBTQ community, from the church's perspective of religious propriety, is definitely persona non grata. And I'm not talking about you personally. I hope there are exceptions to that in here. But if we were to ask society... Who do you think is an outcast where Stones River is concerned? I'm willing to place money on what they'd say. Illegal immigrants, right? Foreigners in biblical terms, aliens in the land. But for us, it's, uh, it's framed in a different way. There's a legality issue and, you know, we don't really mind... other people coming in as long as they do it legally and as long as they also don't take our jobs and as long as they also don't do anything but learn to speak our language and act the way that we like them to act in our neighborhoods and okay so maybe it's not just a legal thing right anybody who's the outcast who's yes Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, yeah. I think I think that's yes. Mental disability. Yeah, I think there are, there are a lot of people who it's easier for us to kind of put them in a space where we don't have to deal with them as much. We would much rather the medical or clinical or professional area of our culture deal with people who are difficult to deal with emotionally or psychologically, right? We would like to to have a space where, well, that space is the margins. That's how you know you've found the margins. When it's a space where people don't want it, they would much rather have it sealed off so that we can have kind of a normal life and not have to deal with the trauma and the drama and the difficulty and right i'm positive we could keep going i don't want to belabor the point too much there are margins in our society right around our lives 
I'll add one more. Those who are coming out of incarceration, particularly if they have a felony charge, are suspect, they are unhirable, they are untrustworthy, they are unusual, don't know how to live in society in the way that we do because they're institutionalized. And so, in so many ways, they get stuck on the margins. Ben, you wanted to... That's right. They, we say that they've paid their debt to society, but society never lets them do that. Um, so, so who's on the margins? Okay, we, ha- we have a sense of who's on the margins. Uh, let me ask one more. What does it mean to be poor? Jesus says the good news is, is announced to the poor. Right? I want to share a short video with you that I think will help get us thinking in the right direction. And then we're, we're heading into landing this plane. Cook, next slide. Yeah. What is poverty? Because this is the most important question if you want to, to work with the poor. I was invited to to speak to a group of theologians. And I asked them, so define for yourself, what is poverty? And they said to me, you know, lack of money, lack of housing. And they try, try to define poor by lots of lacks. Then I decided to ask them a second question. And I, I could invite you to, to pass through the same exercise I proposed to them. So I said, I'm giving you the news that you lost all your money, all your savings, your house, your family, and you have nothing. And you are basically homeless. And I'm announcing this to you. So tell me, how much time you need to find something to eat today. How much time you need to find a place to sleep tonight? How much time you need to find something to do, you know, a kind of work or anything that you can do to start again? For the first question, they said to me, you know, a question of minutes, you know, they could find someone in their relationships that can give them something to eat, and a question of a couple of hours to find a place to, to sleep tonight. And the majority said to me a question of a week to find something to do after a recover of the emotional impact of losing everything. And I asked them why. And I answered myself, I said, because you're not poor. Because poverty, when defined by, by this lack of education, opportunity, money, housing, or whatever, is, is an assumption that leads us to help the poor, giving them education, jobs, opportunities, money. And 
We need to confess, we're giving a lot of money, billions and zillions of dollars in the last 50 years, and the world is becoming poorest. And nobody has been really transformed by giving away just money. I said to them, they, are not, they were not poor because they have friends, because poverty is basic. Lack of friends. So, the most impactant difference, the 20% of the world that are not considered poor can provoke in the other 80% of the world that are considered poor is if each one of us decide to start a friendship with all the risks of a friendship, with all those <clears throat> complicated aspects of friendship. Next time you think about helping the poor, the most important help you can give is yourself and your friendship. Because when you start being friend with someone that is poor, this person will never have to concern again about what they of him or her will eat tonight. They will not be concerned because you not leave a friend without a place to rest and probably you do whatever you can do to find a way for this person to make their own life and and work and friends are normally autonomous but the relationships that are built top-down or from the rich to the poor, based on programs, based on money, based on everything that are not bad because the poor need a lot of programs, a lot of money and you need to think twice about all the consumption addiction that are part of our lives. If you start having a friend, you think twice about the kind of car you buy, the kind of consumption you you practice and will think first in your friend what is poverty lack of friendship I think poverty is a, is a term that encompasses so much of what we've been talking about. Poverty is the way to describe the margins. So, we're on Wednesday nights, we're reading through this book, Faithful Presence, uh, Seven Disciplines That Shape the Church for Mission, and one of those disciplines is Precisely what we've been talking about, although the author, David Fitch, calls this the discipline of being with the least of these, then you may think of that as the most natural way to talk um, because you're accustomed to hearing Matthew 25 
uh, where the sheep and the goats are separated at the judgment, and they're separated on the basis of one thing. Uh, Did you give me water when I was thirsty, clothe me when I was naked, visit me when I was in prison, right? And whoever did this, to the least of these, my brothers, did them to me, says Jesus, right? So it's this very powerful passage that fires the imagination of much of the church to think that, you know, um, serving the poor is serving Jesus and is the most important thing because in the end, that's how we will be judged. I have disappointing news, though. Um, I'm convinced, anyway, and I'm, I'm not alone, that um, Jesus is talking about the judgment of the nations, not the judgment of the church. And the nations are going to be judged by the way that they respond to the least of these, my family, my brothers and sisters, referring to the church. Those who are hungry and naked and incarcerated in need in Matthew 25, that's us. That's the church. And the question in that text is, how did you respond to the representatives of Jesus? Those whom Jesus otherwise very explicitly says, you are my body, right? This is, you want to see Jesus, look at the people that he's sent. I think this is actually much more powerful for the church because we don't need the threat in the first place. We have all of the other teaching, including Luke chapter 7, to tell us exactly how we're supposed to treat the poor and the thirsty and the naked and the needy, what we're supposed to do. We know that. We don't need this passage to scare us by threatening judgment if we don't love the poor. If you don't get it by this point, you're not going to get it, threat or no threat. What we need is a vision of a church so committed to friendship at the margins that the only place in this story that you find them is in the margins. They are the ones who have been hungry and needy and weak and imprisoned and persecuted. They are the ones who have put themselves in the position of needing what God will provide through those who respond rightly to the kingdom of God. That's a much harder teaching. That's one that will definitely make us uncomfortable because it puts us in John the Baptist position. It puts us in prison going, what is this about? Is this the kingdom of God? It is. It certainly is. And I'm positive that we still encounter Jesus in the poor. Because I'm positive that the Holy Spirit is at work where we're not yet. Giving life. Holding all things together in Christ. I'm positive that Jesus already loves them, and chooses to be with them, our enemies, our neighbors, 
I'm positive that if the church goes faithfully into mission, we will encounter Jesus. That part of the promise is not lost just because it's also the case that they're supposed to encounter Jesus in us. No, I think the, the more challenging question here is, is uh, actually what is friendship when it comes down to it? Because that's the practice. That's the discipline. What is friendship? And to be honest, um, what we end up doing most of the time when it comes to the poor, when it comes to the margins, is we do compassion work. We feel bad for people. We're moved by compassion. That's a good thing. And that's about the sum of it. We, we act out of that compassion. Or we feel a sense of obligation. We know what Jesus commanded. We know what we're supposed to do in relation to this, this or that person. And so we obey. We do it. Right? And very often what that means is our relationship to the people who live on the margins is one of patronage. It's one of supplying needs. And our friend on the video is right. Poor people definitely need supplies and have needs. Certainly. But I want you to note that that is not friendship. None of those are friendship. Doing, being compassionate, being compassionate, um, Fulfilling obligations, you know, making ethically right decisions, patronizing the poor. Nobody's going to look at those actions and say, that is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They may say, that's a really nice person. That's a generous person. That's a good person. But the practice that we're after, church, if we want to live into the kingdom of God, is figure out how to be friends with those who are at the margins, so that everyone else would recognize it. So last, last slide here. Practicing friendship at the margins or how to become a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Uh, rather than offering some sort of complex account of what friendship is and how it develops and, and so on and so forth. I want, to, I want to suggest to you four simple components when you think about how do I, how do I become friends with the people that we are going to be increasingly encountering on this property. How do I become friends? Well, first thing you do is you make space. Where is Jesus when what, what's Jesus doing in the description of his friendship with tax collectors and sinners? Having meals. He's eating and drinking. The table is a space. Maybe the primary space, the hardly the only space. The yard and games is a space. You make space in your life for people who are not your friends to become your friends. Otherwise, they will not become your friends. You have to structure your life in such a way that there's space for other people. And then time, right? Uh, the description of Jesus here is 
uh, clearly not of a one-time thing. This is a description of what he is like. Eating and drinking, continuous verbs. This is what he does. This is his, his, his lifestyle. Friendship happens over the course of time. We know that. We know that with the people who we're actually friends with. You know, C.S. Lewis famously described the sensation of friendship as, as meeting someone and having the, and, and thinking, oh, you too, right? You find that commonality and there's this thing that happens. You go, oh, um, it kind of makes me think, <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> the scene in Step Brothers, we go, did we just become best friends? I think we did, right? You have those moments where a friendship starts, but every one of us knows that a friendship is something that happens through time, right? And so it's not just that you have a meal with somebody, right? It's not just you open space one time, but you open space persistently. And in some of those relationships, you get enough time with each other to actually become friends, and with that comes the risks of friendship. The risks of, I'm just going to call it the risks of honesty. Because it's your friends that tell you the truth. And if you become friends with people on the margins, they're going to tell you truths about yourself you've never heard before. But also the risks of, you know, if it's true what he said, if somebody's your friend, you're not going to let them be hungry. If someone's your friend, you're not going to let them sleep on the street. You're not going to let them desperately need to figure out how to make money without intervening. And so the risk is, if you actually choose this, church, if you choose this, the cost is high. There's no low-cost friendship at the margins. It's risky. And if we're honest... That's why so few of us have managed to practice friendship at the margins consistently over time. Because we don't know what to do with the cost. And then, lastly, I would just say um, solidarity. Solidarity, the idea of the, tr- of the true mutuality that is Friendship. That's a real relationship, an authentic relationship where your mess is my mess. That's solidarity. Where, where you don't, if, if, if someone's your friend, truly your friend, we know this, don't we? We, have, we all have true friends and we know that when they start going through something, I am with you all the way to the end. That's friendship. I'm with you. It's solidarity. Friendship at the margins is the call to us to figure out how to ultimately, through creating space and time and taking the risk to be with our neighbors who suffer from need and sickness and social rejection and 
psychological trauma and desperation to be with them, truly with them. My belief, church, is that that's what it looks like for the kingdom of God to break into our reality. That's what it looks like to answer our own question as we sit with John the Baptist and, and ask, what happened? Is this, is this the way it's supposed to be? Are our friends on the margins finding life, healing, hope? Are they finding friendship? Then you know the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what we want to practice. God give us the grace to do so. Let me conclude with a short prayer. Lord, what we're what we're talking about and singing about today is so challenging. It's so difficult to know exactly what to do in any given relationship. And we feel fear, we feel uncertainty, we know the risks. Um, so many of us, Father, have been, we've tried to do the right thing only to have people take advantage. And it's wounded us and, and, and made us protect ourselves so many of us just feel awkward and don't know exactly exactly what it would mean to be friends with, to, to make friends with um, people who, whose circumstances and ways of life are so different from our own. And so we, I, I beg you, Father, I, I pray, please, by your power, give us the grace, give us the capacity as a, as a church family, to open ourselves, to open space in our lives, to open our schedules and make time to be brave enough to risk solidarity with the poor. Um, keep challenging us, keep calling us into your kingdom. Keep giving us hope and joy even as we struggle and even as we fail. Father, forgive us. And, and um, we thank you so much for your grace, for, for the way that you, um, you never give up on us, just as you never give up on them. Lord Jesus, we praise your name. Amen.